Well, 1 Corinthians 6 is where we're at. We're continuing to look through 1 Corinthians 6 and, um, and the remaining chapters through our study of 1 Corinthians. Um, this is the second part in a study entitled Christian Liberty and Immorality, which involves verses 12 through 20. Last week, we got all the way through verse 12. And so we're hoping to make more progress this week, maybe even all the way through the end of the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, which says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. By way of opening this morning, I'd like you to respond to a statement. I'd like to hear what your response is to this statement, or perhaps even uh, what you think are typical responses to this statement, because we hear various extremes when a statement like this is made. The statement is, if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you are free to do whatever you want, and you will never be punished for any sin you commit. If you're a genuine believer, you're free to do whatever you want, and you will never be punished for any sin you commit. What are your responses to that statement? Yes? yes. Amen. Okay. All right. What are, what, what are, that's a good response. What are some other responses? This may be, reflect you or just things you've heard people say in response to a statement like that. Yes. Okay, you may not be punished, but there will be consequences. Sin has natural consequences. Yeah, okay. What are some other responses? Yes. Okay, so if we say that because we're saved by grace and not by good works, somehow us rejoicing in no punishment for sin, wouldn't that discount grace? Is that, is that what you're saying? 
Okay, so Timmy's saying here, it would be hypocritical for us Christians to go out and kill people because it would show we wouldn't have faith in God. That's an extreme example. I'm, I'm okay with extremes. That's good. I like it. I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. That's, that's fine. Yes, Paulo. So the freedom to do whatever you want is not from God as far as sin is concerned. Okay. But I, I didn't say who it was from or who it wasn't from. I just said you're free to do whatever you want. And that freedom uh, is, is um, you know, if you do sin, you will never be punished for it. That's what I said. But that point taken, that it's true that God does not tempt us. Yes. Okay, so you're free from your sin, but you're not free from Christ, and therefore Christ will hold you accountable. What if I were to say to you that his accountability would never involve punishment, punitive, punitive action towards you, correctional, condemnation, in this world and in the next? What if... You, you, you find that difficult? People will, he will punish people, but I'm talking about people who have repented of their sin, trusted in Christ for salvation, and Christ has already paid for their sin on the cross. And therefore, for them who are true believers, who are followers of Christ, there will be no punishment for them because Christ has already been punished for them, and for them to then be punished on top of that, that is double punishment. Try doing that to your kids. Uh, give them one punishment and say, okay, now I'm going to punish you. All right? Were they punished? Was it punitive as far as uh, payment for sin, or was it uh, something that was discipline from the Lord that was not punitive? That's, that's a good question. Yes? Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good news, yeah. Okay, so Stephen is making the case here that there is no condemnation, but if you go out and go crazy, it's evidence perhaps that you, I added perhaps there, that you're, never, that you're not really with the Lord. What if you go crazy just a little bit? <laughs> like, as a Christian, obviously we make mistakes, obviously we sin. 
Let's just call it sin. We don't need to call mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's take one or two more comments. Yes? Right. So the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. We would differentiate that between the condemnation for sin, judicial punishment. We would see that as parental discipline. And so we would make a distinction there. Um, and I think that's important, but that's a good point, and that, that helps us. Anyone else? Yes. I think my first thought, there, it was coming to mind that what Paul said, he talked about those who say, oh, well, grace, when we sin, we're forgiven grace. Now, when we sin, we're more given more grace in mercy. Right. Because... That's a good... That's a good point, because you're saying where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds, but should we, should we sin more? Certainly not, right? That's also Romans chapter 7. So the question is, um, you know, but the point made is that some people hear this and they say, no punishment? Woohoo! Right? That, then that, that's, uh, that's, okay, I'm going to, one more, Yes. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying, what you're describing there is that when you're a genuine believer and you're involved in sin, there is an internal conflict within you. Your mind is being trained, so you're progressively growing for genuine Christians. That's right. That's right. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, opens up with a slogan that we talked about last week. This slogan, many commentators think that Paul might have even started this slogan or coined this this phrase that was so popular in Corinth, and others had twisted it. The slogan was, everything is permissible for me, or all things are lawful. And it was a way of declaring that because of death, the Christ's death on the cross, Christians are now free from the law. And in this section that we're looking at, chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, what we find are really uh, four misunderstandings that the Corinthians had that should help us to understand a right view of Christian liberty. Or another way of saying that, four misunderstandings that when reconciled, or cleared up will help you to flee from immoral behavior. 
The first one is they misunderstood what true freedom is, and that's what he's getting at in verse 12. That's what we saw last week. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And when believers talk about Christian freedom, there are usually two extremes. The one extreme is legalism. And if you don't know which extreme you are Tend, you tend to fall towards, and we as believers tend to fall towards one or the other. But if, you, if, if when you heard that statement that I said earlier, that you will never be punished for your sins if you're in Christ, if you, your first thought was, but there will be consequences, or but God disciplines those he loves, or but, and you start to add these phrases to that, you very likely have this tendency towards legalism. Legalism is adding something to God's word that is not there, and sometimes people make up a bunch of rules, and you've seen churches and Christians who have all these rules about what you can and cannot do, and Paul is talking about freedom, and those who are tend towards legalism, and at the extreme, they actually add to God's word, okay? And all of a sudden, we're walking around with tape measures to see if... Uh, you know, the, the, the hymn is too low or too high or, you know, whatever. I, you know, there's all these rules about modesty. There's all these rules about, about um, you know, dancing and you don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls that do. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> those, those, those rules. That's one of the master's college rules. I mean, university rules. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, um, so um, anyways, those rules uh, can be legalistic when it comes to salvation. On the other, especially if you add those to a requirement for salvation, rules that are not in the Bible. On the other end of the spectrum is what we call libertinism, or sometimes antinomianism, against the law is an antinomian, somebody who is against the law altogether. Sometimes it's called cheap grace. And that's the person over there who says, woohoo, I believed in Christ, you can't touch me, I'm going to sin. And you're going to have to lump it. I like it, you lump it. That's, that's libertinism. And that's also a wrong view of freedom. And the, it's the woohoo view. Like, all right. And that was the Corinthian view. That's what they were struggling with. They had taken a true phrase that we are free and Paul had corrected that and repeated that. All things are lawful for me, but I will, but not all things are profitable. And that's where they had gone wrong, is they had forgotten that sin is never worth it. And that there are consequences to sin, and that God disciplines those whom he loves. And the reality is that those who are in Christ do avoid immorality. We do pursue holiness and righteousness, not because we think we'll be punished eternally for our sin, or not because we think that by living a holy life, somehow we will be saved by our life or by that living or by those good actions or good works, but we avoid immoral behavior because we're saved, because Christ died for our sins, And we have freedom in Christ, not only from the penalty of sin, but also we have the ability in Christ not to sin. 
Whereas prior to our faith, Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You cannot please God. You cannot honor God. You cannot do anything that is pleasing to the Lord if you're not doing it for his glory in submission to him as Lord and have repented of your sins and trusted in his righteousness. Once you have done that, now you can actually worship him in a way that is pleasing to him. And the Old Testament, pleasing aromas came with sacrifice. In the New Testament, those those pleasing aromas and those, the sacrificial system pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus Christ. And now we can do what is pleasing to him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, behavior that is acceptable to God or pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So last week we had the question about, can we do something that's pleasing to God? Well, from one perspective... We can't please him any more than Christ has pleased him. But from that parental uh, uh, way, uh, not judicial, but from our relationship with God, we should pursue and our goal should be to please him. And now we can. We have freedom to do that. We are free. And the Corinthians misunderstood freedom. And once you have that misunderstanding reconciled, it should motivate you and help you to avoid immorality. And these are very practical truths, which is why we're studying them, because immorality is a problem for us just as it was for the Corinthians. And so one of our motivations should be a right understanding of freedom. If you want more on that, you can listen to last week's message, which is online. The second misunderstanding that... Once reconciled, it should help you flee immorality, is the mis- that they have misunderstood the body. Verses 13 through 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Corinthians misunderstood the body. Verse 13 says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now, there's a particular sin that Paul had in mind here, and the principles of this passage can be applied to any sin, really, but especially the sin of sexual immorality. This is the issue he's trying to deal with here. We've noted that Corinth was an especially immoral city. It was a a navy town. It was a town where ships unloaded their sailors while their ships and cargo were being hauled across the peninsula, across the isthmus there to the other side of uh, Greece, and then could avoid a treacherous journey around that southern part of Greece by crossing over in that narrow strait in the middle, a place which today actually has a canal. And so you had all these sailors sitting around with not much to do but to drink and visit the local temple and the temple had a thousand temple prostitutes and debauchery, so much so that if you wanted to insult someone for their immorality, you called them a Corinthian. Now, to understand the justification of their immoral behavior in the church, it's important to realize that this was common in all Greek philosophy. They, many Greek philosophers completely separated anything that had to do with the soul from anything that had to do with the body. In fact, 
Um, one Greek philosopher, Epiketos, who lived from 50 AD to 135 AD, so he's a first century and second century Greek philosopher, he said this, I am a poor soul burdened with a corpse. He just saw himself as a poor soul, a struggling soul on this earth, and he has this body he has to carry around with him. So you see how the Greeks made this total separation in their philosophy from body and soul. The result was that when it came to immoral behavior, they typically responded in two extreme ways. One was asceticism, where they would beat themselves with a whip or a stick because the body is evil and it does all these evil things and therefore the body should be punished and so their soul is punishing their body. We do that sometimes too. We think, I'm going to hurt myself because I'm such a bad person or whatever. We, 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 we guilt ourselves. I need to beat myself up a little bit. The other extreme is really no restraint at all. Well, since the body is wanting to do these things, and since the body is just separate from my soul, which is eternal and the body is temporary, then just let the body do what it wants to do. And so those were the two extremes as they were represented. And so common was that latter idea that Paul says, he quote, this quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, which was probably a proverb that they said. You know, well, you know, what's my stomach for? It's for food. It's hungry, I eat. What they were saying is that sexual relations are just a bodily function. It's no different at all from needing food. My body cries out for sex, I give it sex. It cries out for food, I give it food. It's purely biological, therefore it is really no big deal. There's some Greek philosophy in our school systems today. Paul interrupts the proverb by admitting that the stomach is for food, but notice he says, but God will do away with both of them. In other words, what he's saying here is that food and your stomach are temporary. Some are thinking, "Uh uh-oh, no ice cream in heaven? Does this mean that But what about Jesus? Because he had a resurrected body and he ate fish. Right? That's what we're thinking, right? Yeah, you're putting it together. Well, apparently, he didn't need the fish. And apparently, it didn't go to his stomach. I, I don't know what happened there. I really, I don't know how it works. I know that Revelation chapter 7 describes future saints who are saved during the time of the tribulation from every nation. They're wearing white robes. They're around the throne of Christ, worshiping him. These are people who, when they were on earth, they had endured great suffering for the name of Christ prior to his coming, prior to their being with him and worshiping him. And in Revelation 7, verse 16, it says, they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. And 1 Corinthians 6 says our stomachs are temporary. So the good news is that in heaven there will never be any suffering from hunger or thirst. In eternity future, those who are with Christ will never suffer in any way, including hunger and thirst. 
Perhaps there will be some kind of new food. I don't know. People say, well, what about the marriage supper of the Lamb? What if we're not eating? I don't know. I do know that when I go to the grocery store, because I'm married and my wife has stronger convictions than I do on what is written on the outside of the box, I look at a label which is entitled Nutrition Facts. And it typically says something like, if I'm looking at it, it says something like, serving size, half a teaspoon. (laughs) And then it says, you know, sugar content, 450 grams per serving, you know? And I'm like, oh man, (laughs) I don't think she's going to like this. Um, So maybe there will be no nutritional facts needed because it's not whatever you might eat is not going to go to a stomach. You don't need it for nutrition, you, know, there's no new, you have sufficient nutrition. So it seems, though, that there will, in heaven, in eternity future, there will be no more starvation and suffering, but there will also be no more calorie counting if there is eating in heaven. But the point of 1 Corinthians is not calorie counting. The, the point of 1 Corinthians 6 is while you're here on earth, your stomach does have a purpose. And it is a temporary purpose, not an eternal purpose. Here on earth, food has a purpose, that is to nourish the body, but that will not be necessary in heaven. So both the food and the stomach are temporary, but that is not true about the body. Don't be confused about, don't equate that with the body. Because the bodies, bodies that we have are given to us for much more than biological functions, Verse 13, second part says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That is, they have been designed for a purpose involving the Lord. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 6, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. You're thinking, I'm going to be raised? I got to go up with this body? you will have a resurrection body. What is a resurrection body like? I I don't know exactly. I know that Christ had a resurrection body, that he was dead and he was buried, that sometimes, like on the road to Emmaus, he was not recognized. Other times, people recognized him. I know that uh, Thomas could have stuck his hand in his side or in his hand, in Christ's hand, but he didn't. He bowed down and worshiped. I know that Jesus ate fish. I also know that he walked through uh, into a house that was closed and had locked doors. So I don't know exactly. It's going to be similar, but it's going to be exactly the same, but completely different. It's going to be similar, but different. We, but, but our body is, is going to be for the future. Let me ask you a question. Just just thinking about this, a little bit off topic, but I think it's okay for us to talk about this. Throughout the centuries of church history, what do you think was more common for Christians, cremation or burial? Burial. Wasn't until about 100 years ago that cremation was even accepted by most Christians. So I guess the question should be asked, is there anything wrong with cremation? No. Why? I mean, let me preface this because um, I was uh, in 
Scotland a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to, to go to Edinburgh and tour it for its church history. In Edinburgh, there were in the 1700s, there were Christians who were killed for their faith. Many Christians during the era of Bloody Mary and, and around that time. And uh, the Covenanters, many of whom were killed. I remember I was touring a church and the pastor of the church was taking us through the church, and we went behind the main uh, fellowship center hall there, uh, the worship center, and then we went back into a room that was behind it, the rectory or the area where the pastors prayed, and we sat around this table, and we're sitting there, and he says, this table was here in this church in the 1700s, and many of our congregants went and would, after people from this church were killed, sometimes in mass killings because of their faith, they would go pull their bodies out of the graves, out of the mass graves, bring them onto this table and dress them, and we would give them a proper burial. So, I mean, just think about the, the church doing that and the, the focus that they had on that and just to kind of get us back on track here, I, I don't want to bring up anything that uh, uh, is, is adding to Scripture. Uh, I don't think that it is sin for someone to be cremated. I think that that is a, an, an option. I know that for me personally, I prefer burial. I would like to be buried because the scripture speaks about the dead in Christ rising first. And if you've ever wondered if the rapture has already happened, go down to a cemetery and see if some of the graves are open and the bodies are raised. And you say, well, what about people who were eaten by sharks? Listen, if God could make Adam out of dirt, he can find all the molecules wherever they are and put them together. There will be bodies coming up out of the sea. But there will be bodies. We believe in a bodily resurrection. There are some, uh, Lorraine Botner has a good book on this. If you're interested in studying this more, Lorraine Botner wrote a book called Immortality, and he has a whole chapter on this very discussion. But there are some who, um, who say that Christians shouldn't do anything to harm the body even after death, and that is a position. There are others who say, well, God can do whatever he's going to do, and we have the freedom to do that. That is also a position. It's something I think that Christians should think about as you're thinking about telling your family what you would want done with your body and why. But in either case, we believe in a bodily resurrection, and this is what our text says, right? Verse 14, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And so we, we believe that our bodies are not just temporary, but they're made to house worshipers of our Lord for eternity. This is why Paul wrote in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And so we look forward to a future bodily resurrection and I think Paul's point here is to clear up a misunderstanding, but thinking about sin involving your body and that your body was not made for that, but for an eternal purpose should help us to flee from immorality. A third misunderstanding. We've seen freedom. We've seen the body. We'll look at a third one today, and that is they misunderstood immorality. 
they misunderstood immorality, verses 15 through 18. Verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Well, among the many sins related to immorality, and there are many sins that are related to sexual immorality, and this message and the message that Paul was writing to them could be applied to any sexual sin. He's encouraging you to flee from it. But again, he focuses in even more on the Corinthians, speaking about a specific example of a particular sin, and that was one involving themselves with prostitution. Somehow, the Corinthians had been involved in their pagan worship before involving prostitution and thought it was no big deal, and they had come to faith in Christ, and some of them were still practicing prostitution. They were involving themselves with prostitutes and saying, well, it's just the body, and Paul is saying, you misunderstood. You misunderstand it. This is immorality. You, under, you misunderstand what immorality is, not only freedom, not only the body, but immorality. Ephesians teaches us that Christ is the head of the church, and the church is his body. This is a f- phenomenal truth. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, just, just turn over 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 1. There's a passage there with one of my favorite passages. I just, I just love this passage, verses 22 and 23. I, I just can't get over the imagery that Christ uses, that somehow he is the head and we are his body, Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. This is God putting Christ under his, uh, putting Christ his head over the body. And the church, verse 23, which is his body, the church, which is the fullness of him. I can't get over those words. Then it says, him who fills all in all. How is the church the fullness of him? Somehow, God sent his son Christ, and God makes Christ, sets him as head over his body, And somehow Christ, who in essence is complete and doesn't need anything because of the imagery that is used, deems himself to be somehow in some way incomplete without you, who are his body, the fullness of him. How could Christ not be full? He is not full in that picture without his complete body. And we refer to ourselves as the body of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, where it says, Adam said in Genesis 2.23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that one flesh implies much more than a mere physical union through sexual intercourse. But this aspect, 
he's emphasizing in this chapter, he's emphasizing that one flesh relationship. He's talking about sexual intercourse. And what he's saying here is that if we are members of Christ's body and we unite ourselves with a prostitute, do you see what you're doing? You're uniting Christ with a prostitute. Do you not understand the immorality that is going on here? When you, as a believer, a follower of Christ, are involved with sexual immorality, Christ is not responsible for that sin. Christ is now not a sinner, but his name is being stained with the sin that you're dragging his name through because you are a member of his body. Do you not understand the relationship that you have with Christ? Shall I then, verse 15, take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know, the fourth time in this chapter, he says, do you not know that one who joins himself with a prostitute is one with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Amen. How, how we share the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9 tells us that the Spirit of Christ dwells within us. We have, in verse 18, flee immorality. It's a command there. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Wow, what does that mean? It's not an easy easy passage to understand here. But one thing that I think the implication here is that every other sin that we commit doesn't do what sexual immorality does because when you unite yourself with an unbeliever, you are uniting the unbeliever with Christ. And therefore, your sin is within the body It unites the body. Other sins don't affect the body the way sexual immorality does. Another implication, I believe, from this passage is that those who are involved in sexual immorality have a pining away from them internally that empties themselves. In a sense, it just... It just affects them differently than other sin. Flee immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Believers who are involved with sexual immorality, they they take something that was designed for marriage. They take something that was designed to be beautiful, fulfilling, creative, But outside of marriage, it has a way of destroying a person from within, beginning at the deepest possible human level and working its way out because the deepest relationship that we can know between two humans is that of a pure marriage, a one flesh relationship. And taking that and cheapening it with somebody outside the body and making it into just self-gratification for a moment or treating it as though it is some sort of 
act that means nothing is denying what God has designed, and it is immorality. And the Corinthians had a misunderstanding about freedom, about the body, and immorality. We'll come and talk more about that next week, but we'll also look at a fourth misunderstanding, and that is the misunderstanding about lordship. Before we close in prayer, we just have a few minutes left. We've got about three minutes here. We've covered a lot. We've talked about a lot of different things, but I do want to take a couple moments. What questions do you have? What can I cover next? Yes. Joining a living well is a sinning against your own body. Are you sinning the body whole? Like yeah. Body or the body? Yeah. So the question is, are you sinning against the body as a whole, and are, or are you sinning against your own body? I would say both. So what's interesting is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses the same imagery to speak about the body as a whole. You are a temple, and we're going to get into this next week because he uses the temple illustration again. But the picture in 1 Corinthians 3 is that you're individual bricks, but he applies that here to your own body and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Both are true. Both are taught in different places. But I do believe that he's saying you're, you're sinning against your own body. I think, and again, this is a difficult section, and we can talk more about this next week. I think we'll have more time. But the sin internally uh, has to do, I think, not only with the effects of it, but somehow with the unity of it, and we belong to Christ. Yes? Yeah. So the word members is actually a part of the body. So you are a part of Christ's body. We're not a part of his physical body. Right, but when you join a part of your physical body with someone else in a one flesh relationship, you are affecting your Christ's body. And we'll get into that more next week because your physical body belongs to Christ, has been paid for by Christ, and so that's all tied together. These are good questions. This is glad. This is where I want to go if we're going to have another hour here. But there's someone else who needs to preach today. And I'm happy to hand it over to him in the next service. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. Lord, this is not easy for us to listen to because our entire culture screams in opposition to this. They tell us that if it feels good, do it. They tell us that somehow our sin would be worth it. They entice us and we entice ourselves to prostitute ourselves out and do things that are immoral. And we come to you humbly asking you to forgive us. We know that your forgiveness is great. We know that we can be without blemish because First Peter tells us that the precious blood of Christ was used to redeem us, cleansing us without a spot and we're thankful for that, and we, we are grateful for the cleansing. And for those of us who need, to daily, need, need repentance for daily sin, we come before you now and ask you to cleanse our feet, to wash our feet. As we have been cleansed righteously, but we walk around in a dirty world and we get involved with the filth of the world, we come before you and say, cleanse us, wash us. From an eternal perspective, you have washed us and cleansed us whiter than snow, and we rejoice in that. Help us to remember that and live that out so that we stand out differently in a world 
that seeks after self-gratification. Use us for your name's sake. Remind us of these truths that they may motivate us to flee immorality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.